Good day and welcome back to the podcast. It's Saturday, the 20th of July, 1946. Before we hear today from Bet in a very sultry Nanchang, we might resume the story of Unra. Chapter 15. The Immediate Present versus a Long-Range Future. No widespread starvation. No runaway epidemics. Two news stories the world had every right and reason to expect would be splashed across the front pages of its papers in the first disorganised months and years after the most destructive war in history. Two news stories that did not have to be written. The UNRWA supplies and services which were catapulted into the immediate and urgent present did their immediate and urgent job. But these supplies and services, together with many definitely labelled long-range, are stretching a strong arm into the future as well. For instance, no UNRWA technician ever worked in a vacuum, but rather with one or more of his professional counterparts in the assisted country at his side to see what he did and why. All warring nations were desperately short of technicians of all types. Much of the new equipment and many of the products were unfamiliar to those blacked out from advances made during the war. UNRWA specialists tried to impart to those who would take over when UNRWA pulled out as much of their own up-to-date training, knowledge and experience as possible. The 600 women who went out as UNRWA nurses are examples of the UNRWA long-range approach. Many of them were public health consultants, top women in their profession. They did little actual nursing, except in the displaced person camps and on homeward-bound trips with refugees, but rather attacked the nub of the nursing problem everywhere, which was to provide permanent machinery to train more and better nurses, and at a gallop. So they helped reorganise hospitals and nursing schools, taught in the schools, gave refresher courses, instructed nurses' aides, and even translated recognised textbooks into the language of the assisted countries. To supplement their work, UNRWA brought some hundred carefully chosen European and Chinese graduate nurses to England and the United States for four-month review courses. The problems faced by the UNRWA nurses were indicative of the titanic and tough assignment UNRWA had as a whole. When the first UNRWA nurse arrived in Greece on the heels of the retreating Nazis, the initial hospital she was asked to help reorganise and put back on a more efficient basis had over 2,000 beds, all filled, and only 20 trained nurses, and practically no equipment or pharmaceuticals. Another UNRWA nurse travelled for four weeks by boat, by jeep and by donkey back to conduct a refresher course for Chinese nurses in Chu Xian, only to find the hospital had been evacuated to peasants' huts in the mountains to escape the crossfire of the civil war. It had not a single thermometer or scalpel, only one obstetrical forceps and almost no surgical instruments. Some of the 125 pupils had come 100 miles by horseback. Classes were conducted for exactly one week 
and then everybody was ordered to evacuate because of air raids. Still another woman in an UNRWA nurse's uniform who was accompanying a group of displaced persons from North Africa to their homes in southern Europe doubled as a firefighter when a blaze broke out on the refugee ship. She saved the life of one child by plunging through a curtain of fire to an isolated cabin, treated badly burned women and calmed the passengers, all while co-workers herded them into lifeboats. She was awarded a Soldier's Medal for Heroism. The story of UNRWA will continue in further episodes. But now let's turn up the heat and travel to Nanchang. Mrs. Betty Suter, UNRWA Regional Office, Nanchang, Changxi, China, 20th of July 1946. Harbour Hao otherwise hello. Our newspaper yesterday, according to the translator on whom we are as yet compelled to rely, states that UNRWA in China is probably going to be retained until December 1947. This happy, said Quiray, thought has been turning itself over in my mind all throughout the night. How will we be after 18 to 20 months in this country? Please be prepared to forgive my friends, a Betty Mavers who chews watermelon seeds, drinks direct from bottles, inspects her bed for bugs every night, looks around for the nearest spittoon, heaven forbid that she should fall so low as to use one of those ghastly things, and automatically leaps into a three-ton truck as her usual mode of conveyance. These little activities are nearing the habit stage and will no doubt be well formulated by the latter part of the next year. Yes, there are other things too, but you might recall me to my native land if I subject them to the baldness of written statement, and I don't think that I am quite ready to come home yet. However, I shall put that happy, said Quiray, little thought aside for ten minutes or so, and endeavour to give you a few more tales of China. Incidentally, these tales are no fairy stories. The things I have related to date have been the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help me Sun Yat-sen. And, until the climate causes deterioration of my perceptive abilities, if any, I shall continue to tell you of things here just as I see and hear them. I shall not discourse on the smells too often. They are too terrible, even to write about. My heat rash is bright pink. My skin is a filthy yellow, Atterburn. And I just pour with sweat all day, every day. But I can truthfully say that I'm wonderfully well and absolutely full of beans. I do not exactly tear around the house three times a day for exercise. It is a little on the warm side at 95 degrees and 100% humidity for such foolishness. But I have plenty of pep. As Mahitabel said to Archie, there's a dance in the old dame yet. On reading through the above two paras, sorry three, having been interrupted by one of my comrades who required the latest on the incidents of bubonic plague in Nanchang districts, I am afraid you will think that the climate is already having a disastrous effect. But really, it is not so. I just happen to feel extra good this a.m. Yesterday afternoon, in proper reporter style, 
with notebook, pencil, camera and a general air of indifference, I went with one of our medical staff, a nurse, to the Chung Cheng Medical College to listen in to a lecture on DDT. It proved to be a very interesting afternoon in many ways. And the air of indifference melted as soon as I found myself bumping along in the truck and on the way. The nurse, Pitch, was the lecturer, of course, and she handled her subject, her interpreter, and her audience very well indeed. The discourse was accompanied by practical demonstration, in the course of which the interpreter, a doctor and professor of the college, demonstrated de-lousing of the individual on pitch, much to the amusement of the students, pitch, of course, giving a running commentary meanwhile. But while this elucidating lecture was going along, extolling the benefits of DDT in checking disease and killing infection, there were the students, coughing and spitting indiscriminately. I will say for the most part, they did walk to the windows and spit out of the windows, but they were not all so advanced in hygiene. Really, I just cannot understand. Instruction seems so futile when counteracted by 4,000 years of unhygienic habits. I used to think that the law school benches were hard to sit on. They were. Therefore, I cannot describe the hurt and hardness of the seats provided for China's medical students. There were about a 100 students in the classroom. A long room, newly built with concrete floors, ceilinged roof, poor quality, small size blackboard, and a table for the lecturer. 25 chairs with wide armrests to enable students to write their notes thereon, no desks or table at all, and these ghastly wooden benches. Nearly enough to go round if two students sat on one bench. The benches were exactly like our carpenter's horses, but with the sitting area only six inches wide at most. Of course, most of the Chinese are pretty thin anyway, so maybe six inches is enough for them. But I know that I got up with a more or less permanent groove remaining underneath. I looked around amongst the students. It's difficult to tell the ages, even approximately, of Chinese people, but obviously there was a very wide range of ages amongst these boys and men. Some looked 15 or 16, others well into their 40s. I have decided that many of the young Chinese are very handsome, and there are several in that room who had the most intelligent faces that I've seen in a long while. Yes, there were a few women, fewer than I had expected though, because there is a fairly high proportion of women amongst Chinese medicos. I think there were only five girls in the classroom yesterday. This particular medical college used to be one of the finest in China. There were four others with which it compared favourably, and about eight others to which it was acknowledged to be superior. The Japs tore down every building at this college except one which they used as a barracks. There was a very fine laboratory in the course of construction, which, of course, was pulled down to the last brick. However, plans are underway and reconstruction has started. They expect to have proper accommodation for their present 300 students by September. 
and for their ultimate 1,000 students in about two years' time. I like very much Dr. Huang, who is the superintendent, and Dr. Liu, who is the senior professor. Both are graduates of American universities and have travelled widely. They are both charming and popular Chinese gentlemen. I met Dr. Liu's youngest daughter. She's taking an economics degree at the Chung Cheng Economics College, about seven miles out of Nanchang. She is truly lovely. I discovered that she's only 18. She looks more like our 25 or 26. Perfect oval face, smooth skin, deep dark eyes and sleek black hair. Some of these girls do fascinate me and I think she's the best I have seen yet. In a letter which I wrote yesterday or the day before, I mentioned the fears of flood which have beset us this last week. We have been watching our river very anxiously for many days and getting daily bulletins on the strength of the river embankments. But suddenly, literally overnight, the fears have gone. The river is falling again, much faster than it rose, and the farmers are planning with lighter hearts to bring in the rice harvest. And the UNRWA personnel are planning with lighter hearts for bigger and better gaieties. No, that is misleading. I was fooling. Whatever you may hear of the UNRWA loafers at home, you must never include the regional office workers in the category of loafers. We work out here. It is not like work at home, of course, but it is work nevertheless. Tonight, we are going off to another dance. They do not call them dances here. The invitation says a tea party, but we don't believe it anymore. Of course, there is tea at supper time, usually jasmine or rose petal tea, together with biscuits, cake, sandwiches and boizas, minced meat wrapped in pastry. But before supper comes, there is the wine, Chinese wine, lots of wine. Yes, and there is dancing too, mostly to Chinese records, very old and scratchy, but they do have worn-out discs of a few old familiars like I'll Be Loving You Always red sails in the sunset, etc. These dances are always held at the home of the colonel who is dance crazy or at the home of the postmaster who has a tiled roof suitable for dancing under the stars. Whoever is host, the locus is always the same. Tonight we go again to the postmaster's residence, though he is not the host. Today's local newspaper reports that in view of two recent successful assassinations, magistrates are invited to look carefully after the safety of the politicians. Does it amuse you too? It is a quaint country. A few minutes ago, my curiosity got the better of me and this letter was once again interrupted. There is always a noise going on in China. I've never found any quietness yet, day or night, rain or shine. But nearer and nearer drew a little more noise than there usually is. I thought that the GMO, President Chiang K.S., might have arrived at last. They have been expecting him to pass through here for several days now. So out I went to have a look-see. Obviously, it wasn't the GMO, but my second guess, a wedding. Lots of straggling men carried poles of different heights. 
and with banners or odd-looking gadgets attached, and the colour scheme was definitely red. Red is the colour for bridal garb and ceremonial bridal canopies, etc. About a hundred of them passed along our narrow row before the canopy hove into view around the nearest corner. Aha! The bride, so we thought. Then the canopy came close. In the sedan chair under the canopy, carried by six stalwart but skinny coolies, there sat an image, a coal-black god, dressed in rather lovely red garments with an extravagant gilt headgear. He was quite a benign-looking old boy, and the black, lacquered face was round and very shiny. Inquiries elicited that he is the Thunder God, equivalent of Thor, and that today is his birthday. Quite a happy little procession. Marge was watching too. We never miss anything, a matter of policy. And she said, This makes me quite homesick for Martin Place. Gosh, nothing could be more remote, even victory loan processions. And now I have lost the former train of thought, if there was one. But I never seem to like things to write about, so here I go again. I wandered across the Chung Cheng Bridge a few days ago, just to see how the repairs were coming along. This bridge spans the Khan River right at Nanchang City and is about three quarters of a mile long. Foundations are of concrete and steel and were surprisingly undamaged by the Japs. But the roadway is of wood and the flooring planks are badly thrown together with not enough bolts or nails, with many gaps down to the river and places where fire has done what the Japs forgot to do. Altogether, it was in a sad and sorry state, except for the foundations, and every time I crossed it, I lifted a silent prayer for a safe crossing. I definitely do not like the thought of a mouthful of any Chinese river. However, repairs are underway and though slow, I think the results should be fair enough. The drill is this. A great tree trunk is hauled into the middle of the bridge by a dozen coolies with much singing and shouting. It is then attacked in sections by a dozen or so other coolies who do not seem to have any idea what each of the other eleven are doing. With small hand axes, they chip away at the tree trunk until they have a few planks which are dragged off to a part of the flooring job where they will fit in, rubbed over with oil by hand, and then set into the floor and nailed down. There is not a machine of any kind used. No cranes, no winches, no pulleys, no cross-cut saws, or saws of any kind for that matter. Primitive is right. And there are hundreds of coolies on the job. They fall all over each other make an awful chatter, scatter around in tremendous disorganisation, but, strangely enough, eventually get the job done. And so the Chungcheng Bridge is preparing for the traffic again. Duty calls, and I remember Lord Nelson's exhortation. So, like a true Britisher, I must on with bigger and better reports. Cheers and beers, saw point. Shanghai has forgotten us, and we have had no beer issue for three months. Therefore, let me say, cheers and filthy Chinese jihao. Jihao, incidentally, is white Chinese wine, most potent and most 
earthy to taste, like the colour of Chinese mud. Love and Kisses, Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn. And the featured tune from 1946, South America, Take It Away, performed by Xavier Cougar. South America, babaloo, babaloo, aye, babaloo, one favor you can do, aye, you can do. You beautiful lands below Don't know what you began To put it plainly I'm tired of shaking To that Pan-American plan of the bacon leaves me aching. Holy! First you shake it and you put it there. Then you shake it and you put it here. Then you shake it and you put it there. That's enough, that's enough. Take it back, my spine's out of whack. There's a great big crack in the back of my sacroiliac. Take back your conga, your samba, your rumba. Why can't you send us a less strenuous number? It's getting so now that even in slumber, I hear the rocking of maracas and the knocking of the knockers in my carcass. Holy! This fancy swishing in position wears out all of my transmission ammunition. Holy! I know there's danger really lurking if my rear end keeps on working at this jerkin'. Holy South America!